morning we're going to look at the existence of God. And I'm not talking about my ideas of God. It's very popular in today's culture for everybody to think that they get to make up the idea of what God is to them. To me, God is a grandfather, just good gifts. Or to me, God is just some distant person who doesn't care about what I'm going through. Or to me, God is, is the wind and this, this vague spirit. I'm not interested about what's going on in your minds. I'm not going to face that God. That's not the God I answer to. I'm interested in knowing what's out there, what's really out there. That's the God I have to grapple with. For most of history, the vast majority of people have believed in some kind of a God. In Psalm 19 it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Night unto night, utter speech. There's no place in this world where the language is not heard. You look at the stars, you look at creation, you know something is there. Paul says in Romans 1 that God is clearly known by the things he has made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Most of the arguments for the existence of God hinge on this one simple intuitive fact that every event needs a sufficient cause. Everything that happens only happens because it has a sufficient number of causes happening to it. We just, if someone makes up a, an explanation that sounds fishy, that doesn't provide an adequate explanation, we smell through it. For example, or see through it. How many of you have taken driver's ed? So you finally get the car after you get your license. And right as you are driving up to your house, you get the brake and the gas pedal mixed up. And you slam on the gas and you jump the curb and fly right through your dad's newly remodeled man cave and into his 60 inch TV. He comes home and the car is parked, smashed up against his TV. He says, son, daughter, what happened? And you go, Dad, well, uh, you might not believe this, but have you seen the size of the neighbor's Great Dane? I don't know if he got some broccoli or what, but there was some kind of really powerful gases building up in him that when he barked, it just blew the car right through the house. That's not an adequate explanation for what happened. In the late 1800s, a man by the name of William Paley said, if you're walking along a beach, you notice causes, you notice things that are here as a result of natural causes. You see rocks, you see trees, but then you reach down and you pick up a watch. You open it up, it's got gears, it tells the time. You instinctively know that this was not the result of blind natural causes. You know that this had to have an intelligent designer behind it. That argument carried a lot of weight until Charles Darwin came along and said, things only have the appearance of design, 
but there's no designer behind them. Things evolve through random mutations. They gradually get more complex. God didn't make giraffes with long necks to be able to reach the trees. Giraffes evolved the long necks because that was the only food that they could reach was in the trees. Natural selection. Today's atheists say that Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. But I would like to argue that natural selection, atheistic evolution, has some fatal flaws to it. The first being that there is no way it could have got off the ground without an intelligent designer. This is the argument that converted Anthony Flew, who was actually an atheist who, de who debated C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist for most of his life until his 80s. The more he wrestled with this question, where did the first life come from? Because in the evolutionary story, there's a warm, nutrient-rich pool that gets struck by lightning, and a very simple cell, this is the building block of all life, starts to multiply, and over millions of years, it gradually gets more and more complex. Here's the fatal flaw with this idea, and this is what converted Anthony Flew. In order for evolution to work, you have to have a self-replicating organism. Do you know how complicated and advanced a self-replicating organism is? You know, with all our marvels of technology, it's only been recently that we've designed something so complex that it can be self-replicating. That first cell does not, blobs of gelatin, they don't just start multiplying. That first cell has to be so complex. It's called irreducible complexity, meaning it's, the only way it advances is if it's got a sufficient amount of complexity, but there's so much information there. I don't want to make this too technical because I think we just intuitively know that when we see something that's designed, we know it's only a fool who says that just happened by random accident. If you see a car and your friend tells you, you know what, that, that looks like a design car, but it's, it was just probably there was an explosion in some auto parts store and this car came. You go, no, look, it's got an engine that runs, it's got to be fine, finely tuned pistons, the explosions that power that are just right. Look, it's got a purpose in design. It's got controls, it's got a windshield so that you can, it's got windshield wipers. That doesn't happen by accident. There's an intelligence behind that. But the same friend's an atheist and he believes that the human body is the result of random mutations and explosions. And you tell your friend, but look, we have a heart, a finely tuned heart that keeps our body moving. We've got the most incredibly complex onboard computer that regulates hormones and all the neurons and nerves. We've got a windshield. We've got windshield wipers. Isn't it slightly absurd to think only an idiot would think that a, a car happened by an accident, but somehow think that this complex human body 
happen by accident? Can any of you in your moments of honesty look at just the human body and really think that was the result of a random explosion? There is high-level science. Scientists are continually shooting the theory of evolution full of holes. For you to believe, and Richard Dawkins would fire back, okay, well, you're, you're saying every event needs a cause, this universe needs a cause, and you say it's God, well, then doesn't God need a cause? Who made God? Richard Dawkins says, well, you're saying this world has to have an incredibly complex designer. Wouldn't God need an even more incredibly complex designer? And isn't your problem just getting worse and worse the more you go back with an incredibly complex designer? My answer to that is, if something exists now, something has always existed. Because something cannot come from nothing. Nothing is what rocks think about. Nothing cannot produce anything. Nothing is just nothing. So if something exists now, something has always existed. The question is, is this something that has always existed, blind, dead, brute matter, or is this something that has always existed, a supernatural, self-existent, intelligent designer? Those are your only two options. So when this goes back to which explanation for why the vehicles in the living room has a better explanation, the fact that you drove the car under its own power into the living room or that the dog belched and blew the car into it. One does not have an adequate explanation. And I would like to argue that saying that this incredibly complex world of a finely tuned universe the fact that the moon is just the right distance from the earth to cause just enough tidal waves to circulate the ocean, but not so many tidal waves to completely wipe out earth. The fact that we are just the right distance from the sun to receive the energy from the sun, but not get burned up by the sun. The fact that gravity is so finely tuned that it keeps us together but it's not so strong that we all just collapse in on ourselves. This finely tuned universe, the incredible complexity of the body, the brain, which we are just now beginning to marvel at with our brain scanning imagery. This complexity, this finely tuned order, consciousness, that's the thing, there is a spiritual quality to life. You can have a corpse that has the ex all the parts in working order, but the life has left. Life is not just complex matter. Life is spiritual. It's got a supernatural component to it. So we look at this event of this finely tuned world. Let's go back to that question, which is an adequate explanation? Blind, brute matter, or self-existent, intelligent being? Are you, do you have enough blind faith, irrational, irrationality to believe? And this is what you have to believe if you are an atheist. That something came from nothing. That incredible fine-tuning 
came from random explosions. That information, if we had words up on the screen, there would be matter and energy projecting it. There would be ink. When you read your Bible and you have a book, you have a book that is full of ink and matter, but there's an idea there. When you read the text there, there's information that comes at you. That information is an immaterial part. Information only comes from an intelligent mind. That's what we have in ourselves. Encyclopedia worth of information, which is the blueprint, the idea of who you are, so that your cells can read this information and your cells know to either become fingernail cells or eyeball cells or eyebrow cells. And not only do these cells know what type of body part to become, they go to the right part of your body. Thank heaven for that. Because of all this information in the cell, the information reading equipment, your DNA, your blueprint, that's in every cell, knows how to read it and knows how to create it so that it goes to the right place. It seems to me obvious, friends, that they're the only adequate explanation is a God who's there. And a God who is tremendously powerful. Because remember what I said, how every event needs an adequate explanation? You think about all the power in every atom, in every lightning bolt, in every fireball in the billions and miles of universe. This God is greater in power than the cumulative power in every one of those sources. Because if there's power in the universe that is greater than God, it means that power popped out of nothing, which is an impossibility. So all the power in this world, God is more powerful than all of it combined. That should make us tremble. There's one other really powerful evidence, clue about the nature of this God. And that is moral obligation. Are some things really wrong to do? Just let me ask you. Are some things wrong? Is it wrong to torture a baby for fun? Let's think about that. Why is that wrong? Is that wrong because society says it's wrong? What happens if you have a society that believes in child sacrifice, that believes that torturing this baby is going to somehow appease the gods in their society. The majority of people believe it's okay to torture a baby in that society. Does that, is it right in that society? No. So that means there has to be a reason that these things are wrong that's greater than humanity. Think about morality in an evolutionary perspective. All we have is matter that somehow miraculously mutated into human society. Where does moral obligation, you guys understand the term obligated, I'm obligated to do something, I have to do this? Where does moral obligation come from in an atheist view? The atheist answer is that societies that treated each other kindly 
survived and the ones that treated each other poorly. So in, it died out. So in an atheist view, this conscience that we have, this is, is not, there's no real moral obligation. It's just a sense that helps us survive, helps us pass on ourselves. The problem with that is that may explain partly why we have a conscience, but it doesn't say why some things are actually wrong. And an evolutionary worldview, all that we have, because moral obligation does not come from random chance. It doesn't come from impersonal forces. Electricity makes no moral demands on us. Wind makes no moral demands on us. Impersonal forces, they cannot make any moral demands on us. They can't say what's right and wrong. If I took Scrabble pieces, threw them on the ground, and you saw, look, it randomly formed, eat dogs. Would you be morally, feel morally obligated to eat dogs? No, because there's no person behind that. That was a random accident. So, I've established, hopefully, that moral obligation only comes from a person. Whenever someone says, look, that's wrong, the answer is, says who? Who says this is wrong? In an atheist worldview, there is no person larger than a human. So all we have is collective humanity. What that leaves us with is majority rule. Morality is decided by the number of people. So if Hitler had won World War II and propagated his Nazi beliefs, it would be right to hate Jews and burn them, and it would be wrong to defend Jews. Does that strike a chord as... Does that seem real in your experience? Is that all we have? Is majority rule? People like Martin Luther King, when they went against society, you're familiar with Martin Luther King Jr.? He was one of the leading civil rights activists in the South, where blacks were not allowed to eat with whites, blacks were seen as subhuman. Martin Luther King Jr. said, this is wrong. Even if we're outnumbered, it's wrong. So if there's one law that's binding on every human, regardless of what humans feel about it, where does that law come from? Is there a person above society? I believe that this God who created this universe is a person, is our moral law giver. So if one thing is, if there is just one absolute moral law that's binding on all humans, then it means there's a moral law giver, God. And if there is no moral law giver, then there's no obligation. It doesn't matter if you cure cancer or invent a virus that spreads cancer to a bunch of people. Because we started out from nothingness, we are all going to die, return to dust, and in millions of years, this universe is going to die a heat death, and there'll be no traces of what you did. So it doesn't matter what you do in this life. Some atheists find that incredibly freeing. There's no God to tell me what's right, what's wrong. I get to make it up as I go. But when there's no idea of a, of a God, a God consciousness, we in the 20th 
century, the 1900s, have a test tube of societies that got rid of the idea of God. And they committed millions of murders. Because if we are making it up as we go along, we, we turn into really horrible people. We are broken inside. And if we don't have that restraining idea of God, you know, this moral law argument explains why a lot of people don't believe in the existence of God. Because the implications of this are scary. That if there's a God who's the moral lawgiver, I don't get to decide what's right and what's wrong. And there's also the very real and frightening possibility that I will stand before God on Judgment Day. A lot of times people don't find God for the same reason the burglar has trouble finding the police. The burglar does not want to find the police. I could have spent so much more time on the scientific evidence for God, but I think a lot of these supposed scientific arguments against God are really smoke screens because an atheist, someone who rejects God, doesn't really want to accept the implications that God gets to make the rules. Because we all know we don't live up to our moral standards. We've all failed. We've all felt guilty. And it scares us that this God, this sense of justice we have... Do you think that what Hitler did should be punished? Just indiscriminately killing six million Jews, torturing them, do you think that's wrong? Do you think that should be punished? Where does this sin should be punished stop? We want rapists to be punished. But then where does it come to you? We start with your slander, your lustful thoughts. Do you want that to be punished? It starts to get frightening. And suddenly we don't, don't like to think about this idea of God who decides right and wrong for us. That we might have to stand for this God that might actually punish sin. That is a very unpleasant thought for every single human. And so we cope with this idea, we reject reality, and we want to make up our own false reality. I'm going to spend the rest of this talk looking at the number one reason people give for rejecting the existence of God. And that's the problem of evil in the world, the problem of pain and suffering. The argument goes like this. If God was all-loving, he would want to eliminate evil. If God was all-powerful, he would be able to eliminate evil. But evil exists. So either God is not all-loving, maybe God just doesn't want to eliminate evil, or maybe God wants to eliminate evil, but he doesn't have the power to eliminate evil. So, the fact that evil exists to some people proves without a shadow of a doubt that an all-powerful, all-loving God cannot exist. I went through a time where I felt like I was teetering on the brink of atheism. 
In my teen years, I had read a lot of really good apologetic material, and I had read so many testimonies of atheists being converted by the evidence and becoming Christians. That was very faith-building for me. And I thought, the only reason anybody would be an atheist is because they haven't read all these great apologetics books that I've read. But then I found a website called xchristians.net, and this was full of deconversion stories. People who used to be Christians, said they used to be apologists, who had walked away and reading their reasons for walking away from God. Almost all of them hinged on emotional arguments against the existence of God. The scientific logical proof for God is pretty overwhelming. We walked through that. It's, it's pretty absurd to think that this world popped out of nothing. But these emotional arguments against the existence of God, girls getting molested, cancer, tsunami, addictions, feeling alone, asking God, show yourself to me, and hearing heaven resound with silence, feeling so alone, even though you ask God, not seeing God. These are emotional things. You can prove, there's two different issues here. One, does evil in the world prove that God does not exist? I don't believe it does. Here's why. In fact, the very fact that we call something evil is, I think, strong proof that we believe in the existence of God. Because when you say an action is evil, when you say rape is evil, what are you really saying? Are you saying you just don't like rape? Is rape in the same category of I don't like pistachio ice cream? Or are you saying that rape is an actual injustice? That rape is actually wrong? Are you saying some things are actually evil? If you're saying some things are actually evil, what you are saying is that there's a moral law that's above this world. That we are not just the product of random chance. In the evolutionary world where there is no moral lawgiver, where there is no standard of good, all we have is random explosions. If, again, back to Scrabble Peas, if I threw them all over the floor, they would go where the forces of nature took them. I could not say those evil Scrabble Pieces fell in a place where they shouldn't have. They were just doing what nature did. And in the evolutionary, no-God version of this world, that's all we are, is chemicals doing what we naturally do. There's no thing, there's no standard to call things evil. But if something in you says, no, wait a second, we're not just molecules sloshing around. Rape is an actual injustice. When a child is molested by a pedophile, that is absolutely wrong. I'm not just saying, I don't like it. What standard are you appealing to? You are either, you are appealing to the existence of a God. So the very fact that we call it an evil, proves that we deep down believe in a standard of good that's in the world. My second point is that evil is not material. Evil is not a thing. People accuse God of creating evil. God made all things, right? Evil's a thing. God must have created evil. This hand, is this a good hand or an evil hand? I would like to argue that it's a good hand, 
It gives love to my wife and my children. It makes some pretty delicious food. I think this hand helps me work to provide for my family. This hand could also take a gun from my back pocket and shoot you all. Would that hand be then a good hand or an evil hand? I think it would be an evil hand. Did the molecular structure of this hand change when it was a good hand to when it was an evil hand? What made the difference? How I chose to use it. Choice is what makes, is what brought evil into the world. Choice is acting, is looking at God's law and saying, I don't want things to be that way. I want things to be a different way. And that is what evil is. Is when we choose to do things differently than God commanded us to do. And there's consequences. You may ask, well, why did God give us free choice? I can only guess at why God does the things that he does. But I think part of the reason is that God is a relational God who flows with love. God is a triune God who enjoyed a relationship of love, of giving. Love is not possible with the robot. Girls, you might fall for this. You, you get into your 30s and you're single and there's no real guys who seem to want to marry you. So you go online and you buy a Mr. Wonderful doll. You, all you do is you push a button and this man will profusely announce his love for you. It comes in the mail, you get a nice cup of tea, you cuddle up on the couch with this man and you keep pushing the buttons and all night he tells you, I love you, I love you. At the end of that night, do you feel like the most loved woman in the world? I've just been told that a man loves me more than any other woman in the world. Of course not. It's a robot. For love to mean anything, it has to be chosen. I think that's one possibility for why God gave us choice. But when you give someone choice, they have the ability to choose that which harms us. As soon as God gives us power for good, we now have the power to choose to use that in the world. Do you know how much of the evil and suffering in this world is because of choice? All the baggage children have when their parents get divorced, it's because their parents made bad choices. Women who hate sex for the rest of their life because they were raped was because of an evil choice. The famine, every single starvation in this world is the result of wrong human choices. Because there has always been enough food on this planet. Or enough potential to create enough food on this planet. That's famines, human misery related to violence. That's all because we made wrong choices. So, okay, at this point someone says, okay, I can see how, the, yes, evil maybe proves that we believe in a God and that so much of the evil in the world. But this one atheist took the argument to the next level and said, okay, Evil related to wrong choice does not disprove the existence of God. But he said, 
wasted, useless evil that has no redeeming purpose is strong proof that there's no God. He used the example of a fawn being burned in the wood. That's an evil to his mind, no redemptive purpose, and a girl being molested. He said that's a that's random ex- evil that cannot have a good purpose. And things like cancer, and tsunamis, and natural disasters. These are evils that don't have a redemptive purpose. They're not the result of our choice. So that means that this is an evil that God just chose to put on the human race. I can't believe in a good God who allows the kind of evil that comes that's not a result of our choice. The problem with this argument is the person making the claim that evil cannot be redeemed, that evil has no purpose, is claiming far more knowledge about the world than he is justified in claiming. How much of all knowledge do you know? 1%? Half of 1%? So think about this. We, we know 1% of all knowledge. How can you judge an artist, an author, a musician, if you only get to see half a percent of his work. If you read, this is supposed to be a great novel, and you read half a percent of it, and also that, that's one sentence, and that sentence is, and he died. Go, that is a lame novel. How can people like that? stupid. Well, you only read one, less than one percent of it. If there's supposedly a brilliant mural behind a curtain here, and I show you half of 1% of it, how can you judge whether it's a great mural or not? You know, sometimes more information turn, makes what looks like an evil, it turns it into a good thing. I show you a picture of a woman screaming in pain with a man with his fist in her mouth. I ask you, is this good what's going on here? No, it looks like a man's abusing a woman. Well, what if it turns out, if I give you more information, that this is a woman with an abscessed tooth whose life has been so ruined by the pain that she can't eat, she can't sleep, and this is a dentist pulling that infected abscessed tooth. More information turned what seemed like a bad thing into a good thing. Is it possible that in this other 99% of information we don't know, God has a power to turn what looks like a bad thing into a good thing? I believe it's absolutely possible. Well, why doesn't God tell us, why doesn't God explain to us the purpose of evil? I think the first reason is we wouldn't be able to comprehend it. God's plans are so much more complex and vast than what we would understand. When I was growing up, we had a border collie named Sheba. She came back one night full of porcupine quills. Now Sheba absolutely hated it when we tried to pull porcupine quills from her. She would (laughs) wail, she would fight us tooth and nail. So what we had to do to her was tie up both her legs and get a full-grown man to sit on her and hold her muzzle so that dad could pull the quills with the pliers. Think about how this situation looks from Sheba's perspective. Here I am full of porcupine quills 
And does my master come to soothe me and tell it's okay? No, he ties me up and sits on me. How in the world is that a good thing? You know, we could have just shot her. Could have just put her out of her misery. No more quills for you. Bye-bye. Do you think it's easy to wrestle and sit on a dog you love that's in pain? No. But why do we do it? Because we value this dog. We, the dog was in pain and we put the dog through more pain for her good. But while we were wrestling her and sitting on her and torturing her, it didn't do any good to explain to her what we were doing. She didn't get it. She didn't understand it. She didn't like it. But our love continued to do what was best for her, even though it seemed like a cruelty, even though it was hard for her. The knowledge level between a human and a dog is pretty small compared to the knowledge level between God and us. I think that's one of the reasons God doesn't explain himself to us. But he continues to put us through difficult things because he knows it's for our good. What's the greatest tragedy that can happen to a human? Is it to live in poverty? Is it to be physically abused? I think the greatest tragedy that can happen to a human is to be cut off from fellowship with God. Because God is the source of all goodness, all love, all joy, everything that's beautiful, everything that's enjoyable in life originally came from God, whether it's thrill rushes, romance, delicious food, music, this all came from a kind heart. He's the source of all good. We were made to run on God. Just like a gasoline engine is made to run on gasoline, and that car will not be happy until it has gasoline in the tank, you can't put orange juice, you can't put milk, you can't put diesel in that tank. Because it's made for gasoline. We were made to worship God. We were made to find our enjoyment and satisfaction in life when we are worshiping God. And nothing else satisfies us. We are always searching for more things that will satisfy that. When we don't have the gasoline, so to speak, of God in our souls, of right worship, connection with Him, we try to fill up that desire to worship something with all kinds of things food, sex, pornography, movies, entertainment, sports and we're always hungry it's like a car that's never getting enough fuel on its orange juice and milk because it's only going to have gasoline it's impossible for the car to say to the maker look, make me powerful but no gasoline it's impossible for us to say, God, make me happy, but know you. You know, the doctrine of hell was something I really wrestled with. And I still wrestle with it. I still trip on it. And there was times in life, how can anybody believe in the existence of hell and believe that God is good? Do you, you realize what you're believing when you talk about hell? Hitler burned Anne Frank for a minute 
and we call him a wicked despot. But do you realize that if Anne Frank was a Jew who wasn't a Christian rejected Christ, you're actually believing that God's going to burn Anne Frank for all eternity? That was a tough objection. Until you understand why hell is so miserable. God, hell is not just a torture chamber that God created for people. Hell, in some theologians' construction, and, and ultimately this all comes down to searching the scriptures, seeing what God himself has to say. God's the one who determines this. But it's possible hell is either bad for two reasons. One, it's the absence of God. In which case, if God removes himself, he's removed everything that makes life beautiful and wonderful. So here's how this works. You want to... It starts out, I don't know what age. It starts out, you want to you steal something from the store. Say, God says, thou shalt not steal. You say, God, out of my life. You're a teenager. God says, do not lust. Do not covet. You want to look at pornography. You really want to, really bad. God, out of my life. God says, all fornicators shall be judged. You want to sleep with your girlfriend. God, out of my life. And as you continue to make choices, you don't like God's restrictive morality in you. So you say, God, out of my life. And you spend your whole life saying, God, out of my life. You come to the end of your life. The most terrifying thing is for God to honor that request and say, Okay, I am honoring your request. I'm stepping out of your life. And you are left with your guilt, with your misery. Another possible reason hell is bad is because maybe God is everywhere. Which I believe he is. Maybe God is even in hell. In which case, all your years of saying, God out of my life, has, has so corrupted your thinking and your view of God because you have not accepted God's solution to your guilt. That you see God as a tormenting monster. And when you experience an eternity in God's presence, you don't experience an eternity of joy and worship. You experience it as a consuming fire, as hatred towards God. God has, has made a solution at great cost. I think another reason God doesn't tell us why there's evil in the world is because in the midst of our pain, what we don't want is an answer. What we want is comfort. What we want is healing. My wife was 17 when the police came to her door and told her that her older sister had committed suicide. Searing pain went through that family. And Heidi's going to share more about what that was like. Let's say, I mean, in, in hindsight, it's been 14 years since that happened. God has brought so much good. This has been an example where we've seen God bring marriages, ministry opportunity, healing, saving other people's life through that experience of pain. Let's say, though, 
That night, when that wall family was racked by searing pain, God had just calculatedly said, I know you're in pain, but here's all the good that's going to come from this. He actually explained why he did this. Would that have helped at all with the torn emotional nerves and the suffering? They needed something so much greater than an intellectual answer. They needed comfort. There's a story in an Old West where a man had just... It, was, it used to be so much more common to lose infants and babies to cholera, epidemics, all kinds of diseases. And this fa young father on the frontier loved his daughter so much, lost her to an epidemic. He saw an old country church and he went in. The preacher was talking about God's love. And something snapped in this father, grieving father. He said, don't talk to me about God's love. God has no idea the garbage he puts us through down here. God thinks he can just create this world and let us suffer. If God really wants to know how miserable, how tough it is, he, why doesn't he come down here? The preacher was able to say God did. God entered the world of human misery. I'm going to be explaining later in the week more about what the cross accomplished. But our misery, our greatest misery, is when, our, when we're experiencing distance, brokenness from God. I believe that God, we find ourselves in this broken world full of quills. Some of our quills are our wrong choices. We deliberately self-destructed. We were foolish. We were deceived. Other quills in our life are not our fault. Abuse we've received. Family breakdown that we were born into. A culture that is full of lies. Those quills are not your fault. It doesn't always matter whose fault it was. The fact is, we are broken. We are full of sin. We are full of self-centeredness. Some people think if I just had more money, I would be able to solve my problems. I could buy my way out of all my material suffering. You know, we have a test tube of that. It's, it's in Hollywood, in California. There's people who have had the money to make themselves beautiful, to make themselves powerful, to make themselves popular, to make themselves famous, to eliminate all discomfort, to choose the best foods every day that they want, to, to see the world, whatever thrill ride, and in this same group of people who have the money to eliminate all the hard things on the outside, have an internal world full of misery. They're on drugs, they're in rehab, they're in therapy, they're on antidepressants, they're killing themselves, committing suicide. See, there's external suffering, but there's also internal suffering. And the greater suffering is the suffering that happens on the inside. The misery that comes from broken relationships. The misery that comes from having our relationship, from not being in fellowship with God. God often uses suffering. God is often like we were with our border collie, tying us down, giving us grief, giving us afflictions. 
all for the purpose of starting to remove those quills, starting to do a spiritual surgery, of, of giving us a cure for that internal misery and drawing us to himself. Because the greatest need is, uh, is fellowship with God. There's a poem, The Hound of Heaven, written by Francis Thompson. He talks about God pursuing him. Near the end, God tells him, All I took from thee, I took not for thy harm, but that thou might seek it in my arms. Cancer is ugly. Chemotherapy, radiation, is very ugly. But there's no healthy person would want to go in through the horrible effects of, of chemo, radiation, and the sickness and the vomiting. The only reason you would do that is if you know that the alternative to chemo and radiation is worse, which is a life-threatening form of cancer. When God puts us through natural disasters, through abuse, he does it because he knows that the alternative of him doing to us is worse. As bad as it was to tie up our border collie and torture her, what would have been worse is to let her die a slow death of infection or starving to death with those quills in her life. There's an intellectual problem to the problem of evil. And many atheists walk away. I almost walked away. There was a, a website called Why Doesn't God Heal Amputees? Ten evils in the world that prove that God doesn't exist. So some people say, I just can't reconcile. How can there be a good God when there's evil and suffering? I can't reconcile how there's a good God when I am suffering from all these suicidal thoughts, from depression, from my effects of my abuse. I can't see how there's a good God when I'm going through all this misery. You have the choice to walk away from God, but I want you to ask yourself, what is that going to fix? What does that solve? When these atheists brazenly walk away from God because God has never in their mind healed an amputee, has that fixed anything for the amputee? No. But at least in a Christian worldview, the amputee knows that God allowed this for a reason, God can bring good out of this, and God promises to restore it in the future. In the atheist worldview, all suffering becomes random, becomes empty, becomes pointless, and now there's no hope for healing. If you find yourself in the middle of one of life's painful storms, you're wondering where God is, and you're tempted to walk away from the idea of God because you just can't reconcile how there could be a good God. Remember, what you really need is not an intellectual answer that solves this puzzle. What you need is comfort and healing. God paid a tremendous price on the cross, provided a way. He knows what human misery is. We do not have a high priest who cannot relate to our suffering. He can relate to every one of your internal miseries and your external miseries. God wants to be with you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to give you the only thing. God has a tremendous ability to take what was meant, what Satan meant for evil, and use it for good. This is why we can give thanks for all things. Not because all things are good, 
but because God works all things for the good of those who love him. One of my greatest fears, every time my mom got pregnant, was that she would miscarry. I just, my imagination thought that would be so miserable. I love babies. My mom never miscarried. My wife, every time she got pregnant, the first two times, God, don't let her miscarry. One night when she was pregnant with our third pregnancy, I heard her scream from the bathroom. She had started bleeding. That was very an intense period of torment for me. I remember that night after not knowing if the baby was gone, if things were going to be okay, just feeling so much agony, so alone. I just was quoting scripture, listening to music, and I felt no comfort from God. It just seems, God, this is... Why, right now, when I need you the most, why, why, are, why can't I not feel you? Why are you not there? Heidi did miscarry that baby. But shortly after, God started creating another life. Elijah. Elijah, the whole... I mean, the pregnancy was hard to get excited about this, not knowing if this baby was going to die too. But once we held a live, healthy baby in our arms, I tell you, the intensity of joy and pleasure we felt holding the baby after the miscarriage was so much greater. I thought I loved and enjoyed our babies the first two times. But after going through the miscarriage, the joy, the pleasure was even intensified. This is the ultimate answer to the problem of evil. Is that... God is all-loving, God is all-powerful, which means God wants to redeem our evil, and God is powerful enough to redeem our evil. And that the suffering we go through will receive healing for all those who come to the great physician. And that after having received healing for all the misery and garbage that you go through in this life, will actually experience a more intense joy, a greater ability to worship God's wisdom and His power than if you had not gone through the suffering. Paul says our suffering is working for us a weight of glory. Anytime you are going through something, it's going to take an act of faith to say, God, this seems completely senseless to me right now. I don't understand it. When Joseph brothers sold him into slavery when he was falsely accused of attempting to rape his boss's wife. When he was forgotten about in prison after someone had promised he would try to get him out. Think about Joseph standing there. Could anything appear more senseless than laying there knowing your brothers have betrayed you, you've been falsely accused and you've been forgotten about. But God used every one of those senseless things to save Egypt and to save God's chosen people so that the Savior of the world could be born through that line. This is the power of God to use the things that are senseless, that seem senseless, and work for us a greater joy. So to recap this, The very fact that we call things an evil, the fact that we actually get angry about it, and we want to say it's more than just my taste, proves that there is a moral lawgiver out there. Evil, God is not the author of evil. God cannot tempt anyone to sin, James says, nor is he himself tempted by evil. Everything God created was good. God is pure holiness. 
But he gave us a good thing for love, which is choice. And with that choice, we brought this world into a terrible place. The greatest, the, the worst tragedy is to suffer alienation from God. The greatest blessing is to be able to worship God. So if God uses suffering and chaos in our lives to carve away the self-centeredness that keeps us from God, to give us a greater ability to worship God, what seemed like a tragedy is actually one of God's greatest gifts to us. God goes through your suffering with you. He is there to offer you comfort through other Christians, through the power of his word, which we are going to look at tonight. And the ultimate answer to the problem of pain is to cling to God because God has the ability to redeem and recreate and to heal. If things get so bad, walking away from God solves nothing. Someone says, how can you reject me, the creator of good, reject my son who died for you, and yet still continue to believe in man, which is the source of all your problem and misery? God is so kind, God's so loving. He wants to heal your hurts. Tonight we're going to look at one way God brings life to us is through his powerful written word. We're going to look at evidence. Is the Bible just another holy book? Tomorrow morning we're going to look at another way God brings healing by entering our misery and providing a way of salvation, a way for us to solve the sin problem. And then we're going to look at the great exchange, what the gospel really means. Thank you. Just really want to pray for you guys, Lord, right now. Lord, I know in the midst of our suffering, words can seem so hollow and trite. And I just, I, I really pray, Lord, that your healing and your power would come and that you would work deep. And even if these next days, hours, times at camp, Lord, feel like you sitting on us and tying up our legs, pray that you would also give us a hope. Lord, you are the God of all hope. You would remind us that you are working these things for our good and that you love us with an intense love. We just look to you, Lord, to be the Savior, to open our minds, to be able to trust you, and to give us the strength to rejoice in you in the midst of trials. In Jesus' name, amen.